Hey everybody, Scott Burnside here, along with Pierre Lebrun, as per usual, another episode of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And now it's actually three-person advantage because Katie Strang is joining us. Katie, how are you? How are things in Michigan? Is it still snowy and cold there? I'm good. Actually, three and a half person advantage because I have a little <laughs> a little one brewing in my belly. How about that? <laughs> Well, keep going. You're, you, you're, soon you'll have enough for a forward line, Katie. So that's good for you. Heck so, yes. in yeah. fact, when, yeah, I go was ahead. going to say you could go, go combine with the LeBrun family. You would, in fact, have you don't have a goalie, but you would you would be able to have five skaters. We'd be deep. <laughs> we'd be deep. We'd be feisty. We'd be physical. No truculent. Team would take us on. Truculent. Yeah. I, enough, I, yes. I definitely don't have a goalie. I won't let my kids play goal. So that's the one thing that's happening right now with all. The- I'm not going to let that happen either. It's too expensive. <laughs> uh, you know what? I mean, this is uh, this is again one of the great things about working with pros, um, and it's something I wanted to discuss today. We're going to talk about some playoffs. We're going to talk a bunch of stuff. But Katie, you uh, and I have been involved in uh, in reporting some of the concussion package that's been on the uh, athletic this week. And you were uh, had your hand on the tiller right from the beginning, uh, sort of overseeing the entire package and how it was going to be constructed and the kinds of topics that we were going to pursue as, as part of this look at the concussion issue in hockey and specifically with the NHL, but certainly broad based and since you both have younger children i'm curious would having watched the evolution of concussion treatments and the higher sensitivity to it and understanding at least in part the great ramifications of concussions um does it give you pause when you think about your kids playing, Pierre, you, your your kids are younger, but they're they're knee deep in hockey, of course. Katie, at some point, I'm assuming Stella wants to get on the ice. I assume she wants to run someone through the boards. Let's start with you, Katie. What have you? Has it give made you think about your view as a parent and, and your children? and their potential involvement in the game, has it changed because of what you've learned and, and the reporting and writing you've been doing on concussions, not just this for this package, but in general? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's interesting that you asked that because with every doctor that I interviewed for the amalgamation of pieces that we did um, for this package, one of the first questions I asked them is, would you let your kids play hockey? Would you let your kids play football? what are your feelings about your kids playing contact sports? And, you know, I say like, and how often do you get asked that? Like when you go to like a cocktail party and they say all the time, which I think is a good reflection of, of how much this is a salient topic of conversation um, in the broader sports context. Yeah, I do worry about it. Um, like a lot of things like social media and all that stuff, I, I, sort of hope that there's going to be a pendulum swing the other way and that, you know, my, my daughter's young, so Stella's two and a half. Um, And so you hope that sort of the technology and the progress and the innovation evolves quickly enough that by the time it impacts your kid, you're in a much safer environment. And I think we, I'm sure Pierre can talk about this, but I'm sure we even have seen it evolve 
you know, drastically in the past five years. So I think that provides you some level of comfort knowing that because it's a topic, it will be a point of emphasis. But yeah, I mean, we, we do, we, you know, my, Nick and I joke all the time that we both play basketball. So we're like, we wouldn't actively dissuade our children from wanting to play hockey or football, but we are going to get a basketball like hoop in our backyard and encourage that as early as possible, just because we love it. But also the risks are, are much different. Well, Pierre, what's, I mean, do you, your kids are, are not yet at the, the body contact stage. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that there isn't danger with, inadvertent collisions, all those kinds of stuff. But do you think about that? And, and you know, in fact, I want to circle back and later, I, I thought you, your piece earlier this week talking about, I'm using my air quotes here, the code and a, and a fight that involved Paul Byron and the Montreal Canadians. I, I thought that was, it raises a whole other group of issues, but you, you watch this every night too in the NHL and, and then talk about the ramifications and we watch what Sidney Crosby went through all those things. Do you think about that? Do you, when you watch your kids play, do you sometimes think ahead and, and does it change how you view the game and, and your kids participation in it, knowing what you know about the, 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 the downside of it? I mean, listen, it's obviously something that, uh, that has to concern you at some level, but I mean, I, I see it every day and my kids obviously I'll play minor hockey here in Toronto and you know, there's a, there's a trainer on each of the kids teams. And as soon as there's some kind of collusion, uh, collision involving the head, the trainer grabs the kids on the bench and, and goes through the whole drill of, of looking for signs. And, and, and so they're very much on top of it. And obviously, as parents, we have to be on top of it as well. If if there's ever a hit injury, of in terms of our own protocol and baseline testing and everything else, uh, you know, knock on wood, it hasn't been a factor yet for my own kids. Although my ten year old daughter plays on a team where uh, another girl on her team did suffer a concussion in a tournament and had to go to the hospital, and we were all very concerned for her. Um, and you know, th- these are ten year olds, so. Now, the one thing I would say is that I, I just don't think you can live your life in a bubble. And, you know, I, I have a, a relative, an adult, a relative who suffered a serious concussion a couple of years ago from a bookshelf falling on her head. And my point is that, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, you can suffer a concussion in many different ways. And I think, you know, taking your kids out of sports specifically because of that, I, I just think to me that's that's a little extreme. The key is to stay on top of it, to stay informed, to be proactive, uh, to know everything you need to know. And uh, but I still think you know I'm comfortable having my kids play hockey. Yeah, it's interesting. It's during uh, the interview process for a piece I did on Keith Primo, who who's kids play, right? Who, who's well, kid, well, well, kids play? I was going to say his. <laughs> Caden Primo was the world uh, was the uh, was the top goalie of the World Juniors, obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but it, it was interesting, and in, and in, uh, in during the course of interviewing for the story, um, his daughter had played lacrosse and had suffered a concussion, and in fact, she talked about how um, having her, had her 
dad, knowing that what her dad had gone through was helpful because they, it was a shared experience for them and they, he could relate certainly to what she was going through. Mm-hmm. And Keith was really interesting. And Katie, it sort of alludes, it sort of goes to what you're saying is that he felt that, Hey, you, you can't, you can't overmanage these things. If it's something that the, the kids are passionate about and whether it was hockey or lacrosse, but some sort of physical sport where there is a the potential for these kinds of uh, incidents to happen. You, you, you don't want to deny them that opportunity. Um, but it was interesting for a guy who, who really, you know, took him six plus years to, to fully recover from concussions after he retired. Um, he believed that the the advancements in identification of symptoms, right. uh, the treatment, all those kinds of things gave him a kind of comfort um, that, and you know, I'm not saying, it, like, clearly he worries like every parent does when something happens, and his kids play at a very high level, obviously. Uh, but he's he, there was a real comfort level with, hey, we have come a long ways compared to when he was stretchered off the ice one night uh, in a playoff series against Pittsburgh. And two nights later was back. He was telling GM Bob Clark, I'm, I'm good to go. And that's, that's not going to happen anymore. And so um, I, I just thought that was interesting in talking to Keith about, Oh, you've gone through this and now you have kids and, and, and there is, you know, always worry, but there is a comfort that maybe we have come a long way. And maybe Katie, I don't know. Did you find in doing the research on, on this range of stories, uh, you know, you don't want to say be Pollyannish about it that where everything's great or everything is perfect, but do you get a sense in talking to whether it's doctors or players um, that that we are on the right track as a game in terms of uh, treating this the way it needs to be treated? Well, I think there are certain factors that have almost um, forced this to be such a an important and necessary and relevant topic of conversation. Um, one of which you went into detail about with your story that kind of kicked off our package, which is, I think, culturally, that that we saw a significant shift after the best player in the game lost a significant amount of time due to a head injury. I think it increased awareness. I think it forced a dialogue. And I think, you know, and I've, I've talked to several doctors about this who very much feel like that was a watershed moment for the way that we collectively discuss head trauma and think about head trauma. And also that there is a significant um, generational divide. And and I use that not a pejorative sense, but that younger players now are, are evolving with the times, right? Like they're more informed. They understand the depth and the gravity of, of head trauma and brain injuries. And so I think they're more likely to speak up. I think they're more likely to be proactive about seeking treatment and advocating for themselves and their long-term health. And I see that as a really um, positive step. And I think, you know, I think the crux of what we're really discussing here is the more information that we have, um, I think the better it's going to be and the more robust dynamic conversations that we have around head injuries and treatment of injuries and all that good stuff. Um, I think that will naturally push the conversation further and also really aid and abet the treatment and diagnosis of these injuries. Well, this is a good, it's a good segue because you talk about culture and all those kinds of things. And I do want to sort of transition into 
Gary, your piece earlier this week, um, I thought were quite an unfortunate circumstance involving Paul Byron and the Montreal Canadiens and, and a fight with Mackenzie Wegar of uh, the Florida Panthers and something that went, it had its genesis weeks and weeks ago when Paul Byron was suspended for a hit in a game against the Florida Panthers, something that, as you pointed out, he apologized for after, and yet this was a, a, a carryover on some levels from that incident, there was a fight and now Paul Byron is not able to play as we're speaking here. They have a critical and monumental game against Columbus and Paul Byron isn't going to be able to play. And I wonder what, maybe what your sense of this whole culture and, and how maybe we aren't exactly where we need to be in terms of where the culture is and the idea of justice and things like that. And, and maybe what the feedback you got from your piece, because I'm sure there were people who lined up on both sides of was this wrong? Should it have happened? And, and, and what do you do about something like that? Yeah. I mean, listen, a lot of people didn't like the piece and first credit where credit's due. I mean, JP Barry really is at the heart of, of why I wrote the piece. I mean, he reached out to me while I was still on air uh, doing the Montreal, Florida game for TSN uh, on Tuesday night, and and really started a passionate discussion with me. We went back and forth, and and it ended ultimately with the piece that uh, that we put out the next day. And I think it's it's gotten a lot of attention. It stirred the pot, which was the intention, um, because I think we need to have these discussions. You know, and no different than when you know we needed to have discussions pre-rule 48 and make people uncomfortable about some of those discussions. I think this is the point here is that, you know, why in the year 2019 do we still think it's normal that Paul Byron would have to drop the gloves with a player that's 40 pounds heavier than him and have that fight two months after, uh, you know, the incident involving the two players. Now, let me be clear. Paul Byron's headshot on Mackenzie Weger was dangerous, which is why he was suspended three games for it back in mid-January. But somehow it's still part of the code that even though he was suspended, even though he put out a statement apologizing for his actions, that he should still drop the gloves against someone who was 40 pounds heavier than him and someone who is used to fighting. Paul Byron's not a fighter. And, uh, you know, suffer uh, a head injury with one punch because that's the thing to do. Like, it is so fucking ridiculous to me that that is still the accepted norm in today's game. And I will tell you right now, I mean, you never know how a player recovers from a head injury. We know that by now. We know not to try and predict and, and analyze and guess because everyone reacts differently. But even when Paul Byron does return, and we hope that's soon, who's to say, you know, the next time that he has a head injury, how he's going to react now? I mean, it's just like I was so repulsed by what I saw at that moment. And it just bugs me so much that I'm the weirdo for thinking that that's, that that's wrong. Like it's just, you're not though. You're not though. And I feel like, I think it's important. Like, I'm so glad that you did that piece because I do think that attitudes are changing, but I think some people are honestly very scared to challenge the cultural norms in the NHL and good for JP Barry and good for you for writing that piece. But I agree. It's unacceptable for us to just throw up our hands and cite something that's like so intellectually dishonest and lazy as like, 
the quote unquote code and just, just feel like we have to live with it. Like I, I, I refuse to think that's acceptable either. Like I'm not comfortable with the fact that, you know, people are going to suffer long-term damage from this bullshit idea of like retribution and propriety, which doesn't even make sense. I mean, as Pierre pointed out in the piece, he did pay the price. I mean, he, he, he served the suspension. He made the apology. Like, you know, I think they're, I don't know the appropriate way to phase it out, but I think there are a lot of people around the game that are losing their taste for fighting and just simply don't want to see these players put in really difficult, um, untenable positions. Well, and, and I mean, I, it, I don't know how you legislate it out. I mean, we've seen organically that fighting is, is weighed down as it, as it should be because the game is about speed and skill and you can't afford to have players who can only fight in your lineup. And those things are, are self-evident now, but maybe it's this notion of, and I'll take another step further. It still drives me crazy where a perfectly legal hit hit quite often is followed up immediately by a fight. Because again, this notion of a code that a player on your team even if he's leveled by a clean hockey hit, somehow you have to defend him by forcing the other player into a fight. And to me, that is an, ex- an extension of this. Now, Pierre, as you pointed out, Byron's hit was not a clean hit, but he was subject to supplemental discipline and it was, it was handled. He paid a price and so did the Montreal Canadiens. And so to come back weeks and weeks later and exact some sort of justice like at what point does when the, the league's gms meet do they say okay well how do we how do we legislate this out of the game or at least penalize this kind of behavior i mean well and let me ask it as a question then is there a way to do that is there a way to legislate this kind of outdated way of thinking out of the game or how, how do you, how do you think we resolve this? Yeah. And, and that's exactly it. And by the way, I kind of feel for Mackenzie Weger and all this. I mean, I mean, I'm not like, you know, my scorn and all this is not directed at him because I think that as a rugged player, he surely felt the pressure of a code to ask Byron to fight him. I mean, that's how ridiculous it is. And the reason I bring that up and by the way, Weger's reaction in the penalty box, watching the replay of his knockout punch on, Byron said it all. He, he he clearly felt sick to his own stomach by it. But earlier in the season, there's this weird Florida Montreal subplot to all this. You know, Max Domi, when he sucker punched Aaron Eckblad in preseason, uh, was suspended. And when the two teams met the next time in a regular season, Aaron Eckblad was criticized by some for not wanting, for not going after Max Domi and beating him right. up. I I applaud Aaron Eckblad. The reason he didn't is that at the time, you know, Florida was still in the mix and still in the race and they were trying to beat the Montreal Canadiens. And, and, but again, there's the code, you know, people thought Eckblad should have chased down Domi and and fought him. Like, it's just, my goodness. And and, and listen, I, I bring this one up all the time because, uh, you know, the organic fight between two real players, you know, Vincent LeCavalier and Jerome McGill in the Stanley Cup final, no four, I, I can live with that. I mean, that's something where that was a spur of the moment emotion, two leaders, you know, and, and they went at it. But, you know, just so many of these fights and, and that one in particular is just so archaic and dangerous and ridiculous. It, it really, I, I'm upset by it. And, and the point that JP Barry made, by the way, instead of just complaining about it, you know, let's come up with ideas. 
is that, you know, when it's clear that that was a retribution fight two months later, that NHL player safety, there should be a suspension. That maybe mm-hmm. that becomes part of the lexicon here where it's like, we know that you asked him to fight because, you know, he did that to you a couple months ago. Well, that's now we're, we're now putting that among our, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's part of our sphere now that we can suspend it. That's what that's one of the ideas that J.P. Barry had there. Katie, just before you go, I know you've got other things to get to. Is that is there a way to do that? Do you think we have to institutionalize it in supplemental discipline, Department of Player Safety? Um, is that is that something that needs to happen, or is there is there any way to hope that it that it happens organically? Because obviously, it doesn't happen. happen organically. And if it does happen organically, I think it's gonna it, it will be much more of a slow burn than that. Like I think you do have to legislate it pretty explicitly. And I agree with Pierre completely that, look, I don't, you're never going to eradicate like the organic spur of the moment fight. And, and I think most people would agree that's okay. Like we, you can live with that occasional flare up, that occasional blip, but like the premeditation, the orchestration, like the just gross, you know, targeting, it's just, it's, it's not necessary. I'm not even convinced people I'm not convinced many people really like it. You know, I I know that there used to be like a huge argument that fans liked it and that, um, you know, players really felt like it was important. I have to believe that that is evolving and changing as well. I really think that there is much less of an appetite for this than we even recognize. And if people were being honest about it, and, and really thinking about the good of the game and the health and safety and well-being of these players, I, I, I think you can make some meaningful change. True that. All right, Katie, I know that you have a very full plate in general, but specifically today you do. So you, you are off the hook now. All You're right, going to go great. on and do things. But thank you for hanging out with Pierre and I on the first segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. We'll do it again for, for sure once the playoffs get going. And uh, good luck to you. Thanks for dropping by, Katie. Okay. Bye, guys. All right, my friend, here we are. Back for segment two, Two Man Advantage, the podcast. Um, let's see, what's on your mind today? I'm going to throw one out there to you, and I know you alluded to it in a notes package earlier this week. Um, but I am fascinated with what's going on with the Los Angeles Kings on a whole host of fronts. And I, you talked to, uh, about a, uh, the possibility of what their coaching situation may look like uh, in the offseason, Todd McClellan's name coming up there. But I'm curious, what did you make of the decision uh, by GM Rob Blake to leave Ilya Kovalchuk home from their current road trip? Uh, obviously not the season that anyone had expected on any side of that equation from the longtime NHL scorer who returned from his five-year stint, I believe, in the KHL. Uh, what's your take on, on Kovalchuk not uh, joining the team and, and maybe what, what lies ahead for both he and the Kings? Well, I mean, listen, I think my sense is Rob Blake knows that he's got a, a veteran player who cannot get along with his interim coach and that that situation will resolve itself rather shortly because uh, Willie DeJarnay will not be the returning as head coach of the LA Kings, that much is clear. So, and let's be honest, I mean, Rob Blake would never come out and say this, I'm sure, but they're also in lose for use territory here. So what, what, 
what does it even matter whether <laughs> <laughs> Ilya Kovalchuk is playing or not? I mean, Ilya Kovalchuk needs a fresh slate. He's going to get it. Whether that's in L.A. Or, or if there's a way to move him in the offseason, we'll see. But but he needs a fresh lead, and next year will be for him. Um, but it's going to be under a different coach if he's still in L.A., and, and that's going to be good for him, too. Um, so I don't put much into that other than that. And, yeah, as I wrote this week, I mean, uh, and I'm not the only one. Other people have reported it, too. I mean, it's it's certainly my understanding that Tom McClellan is, would be the number one choice for Rob Blake. Uh, to be the next Kings head coach, but we'll see if uh, you know if if that's a fit. And when and the reason I say that is that I think Tom McClellan will probably have a couple of options in front of him after the season, right? So uh, you know, the, would LA rate as appealing to Tom McClellan as as the Kings are hoping it, it, it is? <laughs> and I I don't have an opinion on that. I'm just pointing that out that that. I know the Kings certainly would, would love to to have Tom McClellan in the mix. And I think Tom McClellan certainly would, ha- would have the Kings on his list as a team of interest. But there may be other options there, too. So it's going to be interesting to me to see how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, it goes without saying. If, you, if you're making a coaching change, you know, except for when Scotty Bowman retires after winning a cup in, in Detroit, generally speaking, when you're making coaching change, uh, it's because things have, have somehow gone awry or, or they're on a rock. So I'm not suggesting that the Kings are any different than any other team that makes a coaching change. But I think it's fair to say that this is a really important hire for Rob Blake, right? The Kings are in a, in a period of transition. Uh, you've already, you know, you, uh, John Stevens is fired. Clearly the Willie Desjardins interim thing was not, it just it was not a great fit, obviously. Um, so let me ask you then: What? How important is this hire for Rob Blake? Then, given where the Kings are at, I mean, this is a team that you know took a long time to become sort of the toast of the town. You win your two cups, you go to a Western Conference final in between those cup wins in twelve and fourteen. It's a bit of a dry spet- stretch now, right? Since that fourteen cup win, so this is a pretty important hire for Rob Blake and and getting that right fit and helping that team jump back up that curve in terms of the Western Conference uh, um, stratosphere. Yeah, I know. It's huge hire. And and I think, you know, the, 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 the importance of the hire is that I think he's got to find a guy that on the one end, because this team is going to continue to get younger if Rob Blake has his way as it transitions. So he needs a coach that can come in and teach, but he also needs a coach that can command the respect of his veteran core and keep them engaged in a meaningful way. So he needs a guy to come in that Drew Doughty and Angie Kopitar and Jonathan Quick and Alec Martinez are going to look at and Jeff Carter and say, you know, that guy knows what he's doing. So it's, 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 you know, I don't know that you can go out and hire the next, you know, up and coming college coach, like some teams have done, because I don't know if that veteran core would react to that. On the other hand, you, you know, you can't just bring in a veteran coach that's all about the veterans and doesn't know how to teach kids. You have to bring in a guy that can do a bit of everything. And I think that's why Tom McClellan would appeal to Rob Blake. Um, you know, he played for him in San Jose and, and has a, a very clear understanding of what it's like to play for Tom McClellan, who has brought along young players, and but also coach veteran teams. So, you know, it may not end up being Tom McClellan. It may end up being someone else for LA, but that's the type of guy I think that would make sense. A guy that brings structure and teaching, but also would, would carry weight with the veterans. 
<laughs> I want to stay with the Kings briefly here. Nothing made me perk up my ears more this week than Drew Doughty's comments. Man, he got the he got that scatter gun going there. That, I don't know, he must have been in a mood. He he took on Matthew Kachuk uh, in Calgary. No one likes him. Everyone hates him. Uh, took a couple pot shots at Brent Burns in terms of his Norris uh, Norris worthiness, I suppose. Uh, and I thought your tweet was was right on the the money. Like don't don't change. Like oh my goodness, we need. We need Drew Doughty's, right? And we need we need him to be candid. My sense of it from afar was that's that's it's been a long, very difficult season for one of the most competitive guys in the game. Um, but what, what, I'm just curious what your take was when when you read uh, the uh, the world according to Drew Doughty this week. I thought it was amazing, and and it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything he says. But I love I love the non filter aspect of Drew Doughty. I love how passionate he is. Um, I love that he has an opinion. Um, you know, as I always like to say uh, about hockey players, that one of their greatest traits, also one of their downfalls, is that they're just so humble and respectful that a lot of players just don't want to stir the pot. And and I think that when you have a guy like Drew Dowdy, who's one of the world's great defensemen, who's willing to uh, opine on all kinds of different subjects, it's just it's amazing. It's awesome. And we need more Drew Doughty's. And, you know, I, I, it, it's, it, it, it goes against the grain of what hockey players like to hear. I mean, I think, I believe Brett Burns' response was that he should probably just comment on his own guys or whatever. Something to that effect. But, <laughs> but, but, but I disagree. Good for Drew Doughty. And, uh, first of all, I think he made a great point in Giordano. I mean, I, I still haven't broken down all the numbers and done all my studies before I fill out my ballot. But. On the surface right now, I'm edging towards Giordano as well, who does it all, not just about offense, but about actually playing defense as well. So I'm with Dowdy on that one. But uh, when it comes to the Norris. Um, but, you know, I, I think with Drew Dowdy, we get sometimes too. And whenever he comes to Toronto, it's normally early in the season. He always puts on a show for us as well with the Toronto media. Uh, you know, flirted with the idea of playing for the lease for a couple yeah, of I years. He, he, he knew what he was doing. And, and but the thing is, I, I think what happens is that you know, there isn't a lot of coverage uh, in L.A. of the Kings. And, and and they're covered by a Hall of Famer, obviously, in Haley and Elliott and, and Lisa Dillman and Josh Cooper at the Athletic. They're covered by very good people, but not a lot of quantity. And so what happens after a while, I think this is just my guess, is that, you know, Drew Doughty feels like uh, he's got stuff to say. <laughs> it, it, it comes out when he rolls through Canada. And, uh, and do not change. Please do the same for your entire career, Drew Dottie. We we need more of you, not fewer of you. <laughs> well, it provide he provides a nice little segue because I know you and you and I talk about as we look at the the playoff races as we dwindle down now to um, what about a week and a half, really less than a week and a half before the end of the regular season. And I, the Sharks are an interesting team for me because I know and you and I we've talked about this past. You like to look at how a team is trending down through the last four or five or six weeks of the regular season. How do they trend going into the playoffs? Um, I know we've seen examples of 
teams that, that stumble a bit and then finally are able to elevate their game when it means it most. But sometimes there is some, uh, there are markers along the way for a team that's uh, trending up or down heading into the playoffs. And, and, and the Sharks are in a, a weird spot now. You know, Joe Pavelski has been out of action for a while with a mysterious injury. It looks like he may return uh, tonight as, as we're taping this. Eric Carlson has, you know, has been out of action for a while. Again, the, the expectation is he'll be back for the start of the playoffs. But Sharks are in kind of a weird spot. They've, uh, they've allowed uh, Vegas to creep up on them for what um, could, well, will be home ice advantage in, uh, in the first round in that 2-3 hole in the Pacific definitely uh, fallen off the chase for first place in the Pacific division, which you and I have talked about in the past and how important that is. And I wonder what you make of the Sharks, because I, I think there was a period of time, you know, Eric Carlson was really humming along and you looked at the West and you were like, I don't know, maybe this is the Sharks year. Maybe this team is built to finally go the distance. And I wonder if maybe you, you look at them a little bit differently now as, as we have so little time left. They have, as we're chatting here, they have six games left in the regular season. They will play Vegas in the first round, barring some dramatic upheaval in the last week and a half. Well, I'm curious what you make of the Sharks now. Well, yeah, and they certainly got the tougher assignment. I mean, it was huge for Calgary to be able to run, well, not run away, but it looks like they'll win the Pacific. That's gigantic. The Flames will win their first round series, regardless of who they play. Uh, San Jose is going to have oh, a chance. Wow. Yeah, I, I, they, I feel bad for Dallas and Colorado now. Uh, you can feel bad all you want. <laughs> um, and San Jose will have their hands full big time with Vegas. I mean, I, I honestly believe Vegas may, might go back to the Stanley Cup final. Um, but I, I'm not going to write off the Sharks. I mean, the keys for me with San Jose are, 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 are two key things. Obviously, Carlson, what version of Eric Carlson you're getting come playoff time in terms of his health. I mean, if he's if this is all about being extra precautious just so he's ready for the playoffs, then fine. I mean, that's a huge addition. But paramount to any other argument you're going to have about San Jose is which version of Martin Jones are you getting come the first round? And, you know, he's had some outstanding moments in his young career. I mean, he's a guy that can steal you a series, but he's been very inconsistent all year long. And I think it's made a lot of people nervous about San Jose's chances. And, you know, we know, you know what you get from Marc-Andre Fleury. So that's, that to me is really the story with San Jose. They're deep. I love the job that Doug Wilson has done over, again over the last couple of years of, of finding ways to keep this team among the elite. Um, there's really, I mean, I look at this roster, there's nothing else you could say, well, they should have done that, should have done that. Nyquist was a great low cost addition at the deadline. Um, they've got youth that has come up the ranks. Uh, they're, they've got three scoring lines. I mean, everything about San Jose screams Stanley Cup contender, but if Eric Carlson's not Eric Carlson and Martin Jones can't make a save, what's it going to matter? You know, and I mean, they, they need those two players, uh, to be impactful. Yeah, I'm curious. We talked uh, certainly in the the days leading up to the start of the season when Eric Carlson finally going to San Jose, and it's been a very odd year for for him. It's it's been hard uh, injury wise, been hard fit wise early on, and then when he I think he had a 14 game point streak, and and all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, so Eric Carlson's back now with the injury. What's your gut tell you about what happens? you know, between now and July 1st, is it all dependent on how he and the Sharks perform in the playoffs? Like what if they're one and done and, and, you know, no shame. Vegas is a tremendous team. So if you're one and done, does it change how you view 
what Eric Carlson does vis-a-vis his future, or is your expectation now that we're going to see him on the market July 1st as a UFA? You know, I, it's hard to tell. And everyone involved has been very quiet on that, whether it's the Sharks or Newport Sports represents Eric Carlson. So there's really no way of knowing where that's headed. But what I would tell you, just as far as my own read on, on things, is that when the season started, it was all about the idea that will Eric Carlson want to stay or not? Because if he does, there's an eight-year deal waiting for him. Now, I... I don't know that you could say that. I, I don't know that you could say that the only decision that has to be made is whether or not Eric Carlson wants to stay. I think Agreed. you have to l- legitimately ask is whether the San Jose Sharks should still be offering him eight years. And, 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 and you know, I'm just being blunt here, but, you know, we've seen great spurts of Eric Carlson in San Jose, but ever since his Achilles heel injury in Ottawa a couple of years ago, We've yet to see him at the exact same level that he was before. We've seen glimpses of it. We've seen long stretches of it, but not the totality of it. And, and I, I don't know. Like, I, I think there's as much writing on these playoffs for the Sharks and Carlson as there is for Carlson himself. Like, like I, think, I, I think there's a lot to be decided here. And right. What, what will be interesting to me is if he does end up on the July 1st market, and, and who knows, he may resign in San Jose, but if he does end up on the July 1st market, uh, it's very thin at that position as it normally is. Um, top four defensemen tend to get gobbled up long term. Basically, you would have Carlson, Tyler Myers, and Jake Gartner as your top three. Um, and listen, the interest on Eric Carlson would be through the roof, but it still will be fascinating to me that if Carlson comes back and he's not 100% and, and it, you know, it doesn't quite go like, like he wants, what is the number? Like, is it still $11 million a year like, like Drew Doughty? I, I, it may be because I think the, the chance of all the, it, it's such a once-in-a-decade in, in opportunity to sign a guy of the caliber of Eric Carlson uh, that the market forces probably put the number there anyway. But it's fascinating to me. Again, just because of the up and downs that we've seen with them in the last two years. Well, and, and you're right. It's not just is this uh, a, an eight-year fit for San Jose and, and Eric Carlson, but if he does go to market, if you're that GM who has to sit down and say, and let, even if it's not a seven-year deal, which would be the max, of course, if he goes as um, UFA on July 1st, but w- what – the commitment you're making, and especially given the ups and downs of this season, and, and going back to the last couple of years after the Achilles, as you point out, boy, you'd have to swallow pretty hard before you were at seven times ten, or whatever whatever the actual dollar number becomes. Um, that term becomes a real issue, and it will be interesting, I think, to see, especially if the Sharks don't go on a long run, and and Carlson is isn't effective, or if it just ends quickly does it change how other GMs view him? And that uh, yeah, I, you're right. There will be always an attractive element to him, but boy, you can, you, you, you could very quickly enter into buyer's remorse um, depending on how things go. So I, 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 I'm, I'm, I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating case study as we move forward here. Yeah, no question. And on the flip side, listen, if, the Sharks go on a Stanley Cup run and a long playoff run, and Eric Carlson's at the heart of it doing Eric Carlson things, then he's in an unbelievable position. The point being that the next few weeks and, and, and potential months here are gigantic uh, for him here. 
No question. I, I, I'm going to shift to the east. Uh, another defenseman. Well, look, at there are lines. It's like we have plotted this out. There's a line. I was uh, curious, uh, and you wrote about this uh, earlier uh, in the week, the decision by Adam Fox, uh, one of the highly coveted young defense prospects in the NHL who came to Carolina as part of the big Dougie Hamilton deal at last year's draft in Dallas, um, deciding to stay in Harvard. Uh, looks like he will um, eschew signing with the uh, Carolina Hurricanes and become an unrestricted free agent uh, down the road surprised by that and what's the well it, i i guess i should stop you there in fact yeah. what i what i reported is that despite that report that everyone around adam fox and uh, don waddell himself the hurricanes gm actually are saying that it's still undecided what adam fox will do so i guess that's right. an important distinction to make um and i'd be kind of surprised if he went back to harvard for a senior year to be honest with you but it certainly wouldn't shock me if he didn't sign with Carolina. I mean, I, I think, you know, he wouldn't sign with Calgary, which is why he was involved in that trade. And, right. and, now, and now he has to decide whether he signs or not with Carolina once his college season's over. Um, nothing would surprise me. You know, if he signs with Carolina, it wouldn't shock me. But if he doesn't sign and, and forces a trade to another NHL team, that doesn't surprise me either. But at this hour, and I'm actually going to write uh, a story on this uh, in the next 24 hours here, uh, Scotty. Um, it appears that that matter is still undecided, or at least for, you know, for for uh, <laughs> for official reasons anyway. Who, who knows what's really going on behind the scene? No one is. No one seems to be wanting to give a straight answer. But but it's a huge one. It's a huge one because it'll be a big blow to the Hurricanes if he doesn't sign. Um. But there's also all kinds of machinations involved as to what the Hurricanes do next with his rights, which I'll get into in my story. But, you know, the, the, the advantage of Adam Fox signing with the Hurricanes before the end of Carolina's season is that he would burn the first year of his entry-level deal, which is right. huge. Um, if he doesn't sign with Carolina, I'm sure what the kid would want is, is for Carolina to trade his rights quickly to another NHL team, let's say the New York Rangers, because I think we all know the Rangers appear to have interest in him. Um, but because I would also allow him to burn the first year of the entry-level deal with the Rangers. Well, Carolina Carolina doesn't have to trade him on anyone's timetable. <laughs> they could wait till right. the summer to trade his rights. And if they waited till the summer, where there might be even more interest for him, that would, uh, that would put Adam Fox back a year in, in his NHL service time. And, of course, every young player wants to burn through their entry-level deal as quickly as possible because you're not making any money then. So, anyway, a lot of things to digest, Scotty, on that file. And still no official word exactly where that's headed. But, uh, you know, we're taping this on Thursday. His season could potentially end Friday afternoon if uh, Harvard loses to UMass. And if they do lose to UMass... Um, I think we'll get pretty quick word. Like I think within 48 to 72 hours, there should be word from Adam Fox and what he intends to do. Right. Well, and it's, you're right. It is. He's such a talent and the, 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 the optimism for him in terms of his impact at the NHL level is, is very high. And, but he's also a guy who controls his own destiny and right. I mean, he, he doesn't have to go anywhere. He doesn't want to sign, but, Mm -hmm. At some point, he at some point he is going to have to make those decisions. And uh, to me, it's fascinating in that, uh, you know, that was such an 
it was an important part of that deal. And it looks like Michael Furland will go to the market as an unrestricted free agent on July 1st. And even though the, the Canes didn't trade him and, you know, with art control their own destiny uh, regarding making the playoffs and Furland can still be a big part of that. But um, it would be disappointing. I, I think it's fair to say if, if, if Fox doesn't end up staying with Carolina long-term or if they're at least unable to return some, some sort of asset, if he decides that he doesn't want to sign in Carolina, do you, do you think that's fair? Yeah. Well, they will get something for him if he doesn't sign. I mean, I, I don't imagine under which scenario they don't because it would be both parties interest, you know, for, for the player to want to end up where he wants to end up and for the hurricanes to get something in return for it. Right. So I, right. I, I they're not going to get nothing for him, but, it certainly may not end up being as good an asset as having the player himself, I guess is the point here that you're making. And, and right. that's for sure. But again, you know, as we tape this, uh, everyone connected to the situation says it's still undecided. So I think we need to be careful. We don't uh, jump to conclusions until we know better. Yes. Good point. As always, a good point there. Um, all right, we're getting towards the end here. We've got a little more than a week to go. When we tape next week, Two Man Advantage podcast. We will be down to a handful of games. Maybe we'll know some more of the playoff matchups. Right now, it's, you know, we know at least we can assume San Jose and Vegas, and we can assume Toronto and Boston. But uh, really, outside of that, still a lot to be undecided. What are you looking forward to most over the next week or so as we get down to uh, down to the stretch? Only a handful mm. of teams still in the hunt, really, realistically, uh, in both the East and the West. What are you looking forward to the most over the next week? Well, I really hope Colorado uh, makes the playoffs. I, I like the way they've surged of late. A big win over Vegas uh, Wednesday night. Um, Ryan Clark, who covers the Avalanche for us at the Athletic, had a great piece. Uh, in, in after that game, talking about how part of their surge of late has been secondary scoring, which, of course, as you know, has been an issue for a long time in Colorado. The, you know, the dependence on the big three and not getting goals elsewhere. Now they are getting goals elsewhere, and they have for a bit now, and and that makes Colorado a, a more dangerous team. Not to mention the the goaltending of Philip Grubauer who has really surged as well. So good stuff happening with the Avs. I've always I like that team. They're fun to watch, and I think them making the playoffs is, uh, is better for everyone, quite frankly. So I'm hoping they hang on. And obviously, because I do all the, the, uh, the midweek uh, t- Habs games on TSN Regional, um, and including tonight's big one at Columbus, that whole Columbus-Montreal race uh, sure looks like it's going down to the wire, and it's, it's going to be fascinating to me. You know, you, you can't help but, but feel like you hope that the Jackets get in for Yarmo Kalinin because he, he made some real gutsy decisions at the deadline by going all in. Uh, but at the same time, the Habs are an appealing storyline. You know, they were 28th in the overall standings last year. As we tape this, they're already 19 points ahead of where they were in the standings. They had 71 points last year. They have 90 points going into tonight against Columbus. And whether they make it or not, uh, they've been an unbelievable story as well. And they've been been fun doing their games on the panel this year so i guess what i'm saying is i think it's win-win with the whole montreal columbus thing because i think both teams have have some compelling uh, storylines yeah i couldn't and i agree with you on the colorado thing to me that's such a fascinating story because 
for so long, A, the secondary storing was non-existent and it looked like it was going to uh, be a, a, a debilitating factor in them making the playoffs. And then for a long time, their goaltending was, you know, Philip Grubauer wasn't what they thought he was going to be. And then uh, Simeon Varlamov sort of tailed off. And now all of a sudden it's Grubauer who basically is playing every single game and is is become the goaltender that the Avs hoped he would be when they acquired him at the draft from Washington last year. And it's, it is fascinating there to see. And it, it, you know, Jared Bednar has worked hard. We've seen, he's seen lots of ups and downs in his less than three seasons as a head coach there. And it's a, it's a, it's a good story there. When I think of the East though, and, and those teams to me, that's where the real emotion of this playoff run is because it's going to be crushing for one of those teams, because really now there's one spot, sorry, two spots for three teams, right? Carolina, Montreal, Columbus are all within three points. Carolina has, they're in the driver's seat, but have not an easy schedule. But at the end of the day, one of those teams, Carolina, Montreal, or Columbus is not going to be in the playoffs. And it's going to be crushing for for the what, that team and their marketplace. And you have to feel, however it shakes down, it's going to be hard for uh, for that fan base and that team moving forward. Do you agree? But, disagree? Yeah, uh, somewhat. It, so we're so we're no, but I mean, I, I think that not all disappointments are created equal. And my point is, if I were to rank the level of disappointment for those three teams if they don't make it, I think there's a clear ranking. I think Columbus has to be number one that they would be the most disappointed of the three given that it's not only about being all in and making those trades and trading all those draft picks, you know, to get Duchesne and Dezingle and McQuaid, et cetera, and to keep Panarin and Bobrovsky when you could have dealt them. But it's not just the fact that if they missed the playoffs, you know, what a monumental disappointment would it be given all that. It's that it's not even just about making it for them. It's about actually finally winning a round. I mean, there's a lot riding here on Columbus. And, and the fact of the matter is if they draw Tampa Bay, good luck. So, so I, I think the level of disappointment would be a lot higher in Columbus than it would be in Carolina and Montreal. Um, and number two, I would put Carolina, and, and you, you've just spent their time there. That's so exciting right now in that market. They are energized in that market like they haven't been a long time. But it would be crushing because it's been a decade, right? I mean, they really, really want to get in. So I think it would be incredibly crushing if they didn't. And I rank Montreal three as disappointing as that passionate fan base would be and as the organization would be, the reality, Scotty, is that it's all gravy from in the next 10 days, no matter what happens for that team. No one picked the Montreal Canadiens to make it this year. And if they were to make it and be one and done against Tampa or if they miss out by a few points, the reality is they've overachieved already. And I just think that if you're going to compare disappointments, there's no way Bunchell's appointment ranks at the same level as Columbus or Carolina, especially Columbus, in my mind. All right, I'm with you. So really what we need is finish it up, Carolina, Columbus, and a less disappointed Montreal in ninth. I'm with you on that. Because <laughs> you, you know me. Not I like, that's not what I'm saying. I, know, I want I just, to happen. I was just, I was, I know. <laughs> I was just examining the level of hurt for all three if one of them missed out, and obviously one will. Listen, I, I've spent a long time uh, around you over the years, and I know that one of your great traits is you want everyone to be happy. 
It doesn't matter where we are, what the circumstances. You want everyone to be happy. Now, I'm not saying that Montreal would be happy, but I, I sense what you're saying, and I agree with you more, right? I mean, there is there's way much more riding on this for Columbus, and I think a little bit less for Carolina, but still a, a very important ten days for this franchise and 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 their ability to 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 put behind really a decade of of misery. Um, and you're right, Montreal is they're they're where very few people thought they would be right now. And that is ownership of the playoff spot. So I, I, I'm not disagreeing. So we'll, we'll see, but it'll be great because a week from now things will be, well, they may be more clear or they may not be, but uh, we will revisit this in a week. But uh, as always, my friend, great catching up, good times with you and, uh, and uh, can't wait for the, uh, the playoffs to start. So it's going to be a great ride. Right so on, right you. on. All right, brother. Talk next week. All right, man.